Revelation chapter 2. We have been, or we're on our way studying through the seven churches, the seven letters to the seven churches that Christ gave John in this vision in chapters 2 and 3, and we've reached the church of Pergamum, the third church here. So we're going to be reading in Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 12, and then going down to verse 17. Revelation 2, verse 12 through 17. If you'll follow along as I read, the Bible says, And the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath a sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So thou hast also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Let's take a minute and pray, and then we'll look at our message today. Our Lord God and Father, we just come before you now and ask for your intervention in our lives and in our thoughts. Lord, we, look, we are looking at your word right now. We want to know the message that you have for us. We want to understand it and how it applies to us. And you've told us that this message is not just for this church, but it's for all of us. So help us truly to hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to take it to heart, to understand the things that you want us to do from it and how you want us to live. And so, Lord, we ask for your Spirit to do his work in our hearts and minds, that you would remove distractions and just help us to focus on what you want us to hear today. Lord, now during this time, I pray that you would just use me as your instrument and your mouthpiece. Lord, I need your Spirit to guide me, to fill me with power and with strength with wisdom, so that your word is spoken. Lord, we all need you, and we are trusting you to do your work now in and through us, so that during this time you would receive all the glory and honor and praise for all that's accomplished. We give this time now to you. May you do your work in us. We thank you for what you're going to do, and we praise you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. As we come back to Revelation chapter 2, as I mentioned, we've been going through the seven churches of Revelation, the churches that Christ himself sent these messages, these letters to. And so far, we've looked at the church at Ephesus. That's what we want to call the loveless church. They left their true love, Christ says. And as we saw through history, it didn't take long, and Christ removed that candlestick as he warned them that he would if they didn't repent. And then we looked last week at the church at Smyrna, and Smyrna was one of the rare churches of these seven that received no condemnation. There was nothing that Christ said, I have something against you. He commended them for their faithfulness in persecution, and we look at them as the persecuted church. 
and they were faithful even unto death in the face of persecution. And today we arrive at Pergamum, or Pergamos. Some of you may have Pergamum, some may have Pergamos. It's the same town or same city, and it's the same church. And in Pergamum, we see what we would call the compromising church. And Christ has several things against them. He commends them as he does the others, but he says, I have some things against you. But before we look at his commendation and his condemnation of these churches, I want you to pay attention as we just look at this passage about how Christ introduces himself to the church here. He does this with each one of the churches in a different way, and he uses phrases to describe himself that we've already read in chapter 1, as John sees this revelation of the, the glorified Christ. And so in verse 12, he addresses the church at Pergamum, and he says, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Now, if you remember back in chapter 1 and verse 16, John is describing the vision that he has of the, of the risen and glorified Christ. And he says, And he had in his hand, right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And so Christ is using those words, that description of himself here, and he says, I'm the one that has this sharp two-edged sword. And that represents his word. It's the word that comes out of Christ's mouth that has power. Now, although it doesn't say here in verse 12 that the sword is coming out of his mouth, it's the same sword. It's the same word of God. And we found, as we looked at chapter 1, that it's in the word of God, the word of Christ, in which there is power. That's where the power resides. Not just for God or from God, but for us. Okay? Paul recognized this in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, when he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. People are not saved because of a choice. People are saved because of the power of God. And if it wasn't for the word of God, none of us would have salvation. None of us would have hope. It's that transforming power of God that comes from his word that changes us in salvation and in sanctification. In Isaiah 55, the prophet recognized this as well. In verse 11, he's quoting the Lord or, or giving the word of the Lord. And he says, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word will never return void. God's word has power to accomplish exactly what he wants fully. And in Psalm 107, David recognized this when he said, I sent, he sent out his word and healed them. Through the word of God, people were healed. Remember Jesus' life on earth as he went around and healed people. Many of them he didn't even touch. All he said was, because of your faith, you are healed. And they went away clean. And so the power is found in the word of God. Genesis chapter 1, again, tells us that God spoke and all of creation came into his existence. Everything that we see on earth and in heaven came out of the word of God. In Ephesians 6, we are told about the armor of God in the last part of that chapter, how we are supposed to defend against the wiles and the attacks of Satan. And it, in verse 17, it says, And take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It's the only offensive weapon we have in that armor that will help us to defend against Satan's attacks. The word of God. Remember when Christ was tempted by Satan. And every time Satan came and tempted him after his 40 days in the wilderness, Christ said, as it is written, 
And he quoted the word of God because that's where the power is. And in Hebrews chapter 4, as we saw again before, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, in Hebrews chapter 4, the context there that we many times will just overlook is a context of judgment, in a sense. And that's what Christ is saying here, that he will judge with the sword of the word that comes out of his mouth. In Hebrews 4, if you read the earlier part of that chapter, the author's addressing those that are part of the church that perform all of the actions, and yet their heart is not really submitted to Christ. And he's talking to Hebrews, Jews, who were notorious for performing the works of the law, but really no faith in God. And so God, or Jesus here is talking about the sword of the word of judgment that comes out of his mouth. And you're going to see why he says this to this church in particular as we look at what uh, he says about this church. So God's word, the sword of the Lord, will pierce into the heart, will carry out that judgment, will do those things that he wants it to accomplish. And in fact, if, when we get to Revelation 19, we'll read in verse 5, it says, And out of his mouth, talking about Christ, goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. So again, the judgment of God comes out of his word. And it's his word that has the power for everything. So Christ is saying here, as he introduces himself to this church, that he has this sword of judgment, his word, which he's going to use against some of the people in this church if they don't repent. Okay, so he's addressing this church. But again, as we've seen with every church, he says this message is for all of us. And so all of us need to pay attention so that we don't fall under this judgment of God. Now, I want you to look at how Christ describes this church at Pergamum or Pergamos. In verse 12, he introduces himself. And then in verse 13, he says, I know thy works where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Now, I'm going to stop there for just a second because I want to look at those phrases. He says, I know thy works. Now, we've heard this before because he came out and said this about the church at Ephesus. And depending on your translation, it's also included with the church at Smyrna. But knowing, God knowing us and knowing what we're doing, not just what we're doing, but why we're doing it, can be either a comfort or a conviction. Because lots of people can live their lives and perform the outward actions, as we're going to see in a minute. They perform the outward works of Christianity, and yet their heart is really not submitted to God. And so Christ says, I know your works. I know your motivation. Not just what you do, but why you do it. And so it can be a comfort or a conviction, and I think it's taken both ways here. It's a commendation to the people. They are a faithful church outwardly. They're working hard, just like the church at Ephesus was. They're, they're, they're doing all the right things. And Christ says, I recognize that, but we need to examine it a little further. It's not just about the outward. And then he says, I know where you live. And he's talking about the city of Pergamum and the area surrounding that city, the culture, the environment that this church existed in. Now, let me give you some background about Pergamum so that we can understand a little bit of how it ties into Christ's message to this church here. 
Pergamum was a great city, just very similar to Ephesus and Smyrna. And if you remember, I mentioned last week that these three cities, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, were always competing to be considered the top rail of the cities of Asia Minor. They wanted to be the first, the best, the brightest, okay? And so this competition between them always existed. Now, Pergamum had kind of a step up on the other two because Pergamum was actually the capital of Asia Minor at this time. It had been for roughly 250 years when John wrote this epistle. Pergamum was about 55 miles north of Smyrna, just short of 100 miles north of Ephesus, and it was on a main postal route through Asia Minor. It wasn't a port city like Ephesus and Smyrna, but that doesn't mean that it didn't get a lot of attention. It was a very beautiful city. Uh, In fact, the city still stands today, or what's left of the city, city still stands today. It's called Bergama. It's in eastern Turkey. You can go and visit there. And in the middle of Bergama, a civilized city now of about 100,000 people, you can find many of the ruins of the great uh, structures and the great um, uh, uh, different pieces of architecture that existed during this time that John is writing this letter. Pliny the Elder was a Roman historian. He called it by far the most distinguished city in Asia. So you see what kind of a city we're talking about. It's a very grand, very popular very welcoming city for people to come into. The city, as I mentioned, was a great center of culture, of science, and of religion, just like we saw in Ephesus and Smyrna. Each of them had kind of their own character in their greatness. What made uh, uh, Pergamos stand out is that in the middle of Pergamum was a great library. It had over 200,000 volumes in it. Now, remember, we're talking about a time before the printing press. So these were all handwritten on parchment. And in fact, Pergamum was known for developing their own special version of parchment out of animal skin so that it would last a lot longer than what they had been using, the papyrus from Egypt or other parchment that other people had developed. So so Pergamus was known for its education. It had this great library, had their own development of their their parchment here, and um, this library was second in the world only to the library at Alexandria. And if you know anything about history, Alexandria was considered to be the library of the world. Uh, In fact, there was a great... A congregation of Jews in Alexandria that that contributed to that, and uh, the, the, there were uh, uh, translations of the Old Testament that were done in Alexandria. So, for Pergamum and the library there to be con- compared to Alexandria, I mean, you're talking the elite here. So, it's a great city. It's a well-informed and well-educated city, and this is what Christ is saying. I know where you live. Okay. Now, I'm going to talk about the religious aspect of it, but I want to look at that next phrase that Christ uses in describing this church. And he says in verse 13, I know where you dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. Now, the word seat there means throne. This is kind of the center of satanic activity of the area, is what Christ's saying. Satan starts here. It's his headquarters, and you're in the middle of it. Now, there's a reason why Christ said this. Obviously, Christ could see and knew of Satan's activity and his works in that area, what he was trying to accomplish. 
Now remember, Satan is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once, so he works from a specific place. He can travel around just like other angels can, but he can't be everywhere at once. And so Christ said, you're at Satan's headquarters. This is the throne of Satan where you live and where you worship in this church. This was the headquarters of Satan for that region. Now, if you look at the religious uh, aspect of the city, there was, again, numerous temples to pagan gods that were right in the middle of the city. They dominated this city at this time. There was a huge temple uh, built to Zeus. And if you went into this temple of Zeus, it wasn't just a massive temple, but in the middle of this temple, there was a gathering place where in the middle of that was built a massive altar to Zeus. The altar was shaped like a horseshoe. And if you traced around the base, the base of this altar was 446 feet around. So we're not talking about something like this. We're talking a massive altar. It was 18 feet high. And this altar was built for the worship to Zeus. Now you talk about the throne of Satan. Here it is. Okay, He could have been very well referring to that altar specifically as the throne where Satan's seat is. Um, Also in Pergamum, there was a temple to a god named Asclepius. Now, you may not be familiar with this god. I hope not, um, unless you've studied uh, Greek and Roman mythology and the gods that they worship. But you probably are familiar with his image. I'm sure you've probably seen it. Asclepius was considered to be the god of healing, And his image was in the form of a snake. And in fact, the temple to Asclepius, people would go there and they would lay on the floor if they were sick. And there were live snakes that lived in the temple and the snakes would crawl and slither over their bodies. And these people thought that that was this God's way of providing healing for them through these snakes. Now, the symbol that we use today to represent the medical profession, if you're familiar with it, it's a staff with two snakes coiled around it, and at the top there's a pair of wings. That is the medical symbol that everyone recognizes today. Many people think that came from the serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness. The people looked on and were healed. It doesn't. It comes from this god Asclepius, who was a snake. In fact, the the, uh, statue, the image of Asclepius, looked very similar to, to that medical symbol that we have, except that it was one snake coiled around a staff. And that's what people worshipped. Now, we ha- so we have all of these gods. Now, remember, what was the animal that Satan used to tempt Eve in the Garden of Eden right at the beginning? The serpent. Okay? And here we have a whole culture where their worship is centered around worshipping the snake. There are no false gods. When we talk about false gods, they don't exist. Okay, Zeus didn't exist. Asclepius didn't exist. All of these false gods don't exist, but what does exist is Satan. He is the heart of every pagan worship. He is the object of all of this heathen worship. So they're not worshiping Zeus. They're not worshiping Asclepius. They're worshiping Satan. Because he uses whatever he can, whatever gods he can put in people's lives, to draw them away from the true God. So this is when when Christ says, you live in the seat of Satan, the throne of Satan. We start to get that picture just by looking at all of the pagan worship that happens around them. Satan is represented in Revelation chapter 12 and chapter 20 
as that old serpent and that old dragon. So we have all of these references and all of these pictures of Satan. Now, one other prominent temple in Pergamum, besides these two and others that were there, was the temple to the emperor. And remember, at this time, uh, during the reign of Diocletian, it was mandatory that you had to worship the emperor. I'm sorry, it was Domitian, not Diocletian. Domitian. Um, So they had a a temple in many of the cities, especially in the bigger cities, where people would come. They would worship the emperor. They would offer incense to the emperor and pledge their allegiance and loyalty to him, not just as the leader of their country, but as a god himself. And so they had to recognize the emperor as a god. In fact, if you did not offer that allegiance and that worship to him, you did not live very long. Uh, You were considered a rebel and a traitor. And in fact, they considered you to be an atheist. As they looked upon the church, they considered them to be atheists because they worshiped a God they couldn't see. And so if you didn't offer your allegiance to the emperor, you would die. So pagan worship dominated this city, just like it dominated the entire area where they lived in, in Asia Minor. And that's what we've seen as the scenario for all of the cities that we've looked at and all of the churches that we've looked at before. But it wasn't just about worshiping pagan gods. Okay, When you start to look at the details, and I don't want to describe it in detail because it's not appropriate for our setting today or for any setting, really, because it's X-rated material. When you talk about pagan worship that was happening in these, these pagan temples. Um, just a very brief description. Basically, it was Im- full of immorality and drunkenness. That, that was their worship. And it was through this immorality and drunkenness that people believed they would commune with the gods as they entered into this kind of a spiritual trance in their minds. And they were outside of control of their bodies, and that's how they communed with these gods. That was worship to them. And it was in this hyper-emotional and sensualistic high, really, almost like a a drug-induced high. But here it was this alcohol and immorality-induced high. They were so in the depths of it that they lost control of themselves. And it was in the midst of this worship that they claimed that people would offer themselves to the gods to be filled with their power and presence, to commune with them in a very intimate way. And this is what they described as worship. Now, we know, basically, at this point, they're not communing with gods. They're communing with Satan. It's satanic worship. That's the root of it. And in extreme cases of this, pagan worshipers would cut themselves and mar their bodies And they wouldn't feel any pain in the process because they're in this alcohol and and sexually induced high that they're in. Um, And as Ephesians 6 tells us, it's not the things of this world. It's not flesh and bone that we're fighting. It's principalities and powers, rulers of the, the high places. It's Satan himself, the spirit world that we are fighting against. But that's who these people worshiped. That's pagan worship described. And this is the situation in which this church exists. And that's why Christ says, I know that you exist or you dwell in the seat of Satan, in the middle of all this perversion and false worship, at the very center of Satan's activity in Asia Minor at the time. 
But look at what he says. He gives them some commendation at the end of verse 13. In the second half, he says, you're in the middle of this, but I know thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. Two great commendations to this church. Thou hast not, thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. Now again, remember the wicked stronghold in which this church existed, and yet they continue to hold fast to the name of Christ. Now it's not just in their faith. What he's talking about is holding fast in declaring the name of Jesus Christ. In being that faithful witness, that testimony of who their true king really is and who they've submitted themselves to in worship. This is a faithful church. And if you think about this church in that setting, it would be, in a sense, like taking our church and putting it in the middle of Sodom and Gomorrah and saying, okay, we need to be faithful in proclaiming the name of Christ in this environment. That's this church. So he says, thou holdest fast my name. And then he says, thou hast not denied my faith. Now, I want you to pay attention to the words that Christ uses here, because he doesn't say, thou hast not denied the faith. He says, thou hast not denied my faith. So he's not talking specifically about, you know, you've done a good job in in maintaining faith. He's basically saying, you have not denied my truth, the substance about me which our faith is focused on. They have maintained Christ's truth here. So in Christ's words, we see that it's an active church outwardly. They have proclaimed the testimony of the Lord Jesus in a completely ungodly environment that they live in, and now they have persevered in truth. They have held to the doctrines of the gospel, to the doctrines of Jesus Christ, they have not compromised the truth of God at all in the middle of this corrupt environment that they live in. So again, you look at this church outwardly and you say, man, that's a church I think I'd want to be a part of. Look at all of what they're facing, and yet they're faithful to the Lord. And look at the extent to which they've been faithful. He goes on in verse 13, he says, even in the I'm sorry, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. And so Christ gives them an example. Now, we don't know much about Antipas. There's not much in history about him. But he describes him as a martyr. The word martyr here is the Greek word martus. Originally, and at its root, it means witness. We've taken that word and transliterated it into English, and when we think of martyr, we think of someone who died for their faith, who was killed. But those are synonymous to these people, because if you were a faithful witness, you would die. There's no question about it. Because those people in the Roman Empire, in these environments, realized that they were fighting everyone around them, the Roman government, The Jews, as we saw last week, who were the synagogue of Satan, trying to bring the church down. The culture, everybody was against him. And so, if you were going to be a faithful witness to Christ, you would end up dying, probably. And so, that's what Christ says about this man, uh, Antipas. He says he was a faithful martyr. Now, again, the little that we know about Antipas is that he was... Uh, in this church before this letter had been written. 
So we're talking about maybe between 50 and 80 A.D., sometime there. Um, From Christian tradition, from some other writings that we have available to us, we have this information that Antipas could very well have been a disciple of the Apostle John, just like Polycarp was that we looked at last week. John taught Antipas, and in fact, many people believe that it was John the Apostle that appointed Antipas as an elder in this church at Pergamos. So that's who we're talking about when Christ references Antipas, who was the martyr. He was faithful in his testimony, not just inside the walls of the church, but in the, the environment, the culture, the, the neighborhood around him, no matter how bad the persecution was. He was faithful unto death in that testimony. And so this church at Pergamum is a church that is very strong and outspoken in their testimony for Christ and in their faithful workings, okay? So again, we look at the outside and we think, man, this is a great church. Look, one of their leaders died for Christ. I mean, that's a huge testimony toward the faithfulness of the church. But Christ looks on the inside, and that's why we get to verse 14. He says, but I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So Christ has this condemnation now after he commends them for their faithfulness, their testimony, their works. He says, but you're allowing elements in your church that are going to destroy you. Now, I want to show you something about what Christ said here. In this description of the problems that he addresses in this church, he gives us this contrast between you talking to the church, and then he used these references to them. And you're going to see this more as we get through the rest of this passage. He says, there are some, that's them. So as he talks about the some, he's talking about these people who are propagating this problem in the church. But he says, you, talking to the church, have tolerated that. So there's a division here. The you, he's addressing faithful believers, true believers. And as we'll see as we get through this, the them, the some, are not true believers. These are people who come to the church, who are in the church, they're part of the church. They may be even doing works in the church, but he says they have brought in this abominable stuff that is corrupting the church. Now, this is exactly what he taught in the parable of the wheat and tares in Matthew chapter 13. Jesus was telling his disciples this this parable, and he says there was a farmer who sowed wheat in his field, and then he went in and went to bed, and during the night his enemy came and sowed tares or weeds in his field. And as the the seeds grew up, the servants came to the master and said, where'd the weeds come from? I thought we just planted wheat. And he said, well, the enemy has done this. The servant said, well, should we go out and pull up the weeds or the tares? The master says, no, don't do that. You'll pull up the wheat. You wait until the harvest, and it'll all be sorted out then. And the tares will be separated from the true wheat, and the tares will be burned. And we will keep the wheat. And what Christ was teaching is, in the church, in his kingdom, on earth at this point, there are people in the church who are both true believers and non-believers. And it's very difficult to tell the difference just from outward appearance. But Christ knows. 
And at the end, he will separate out the tares, the weeds, for judgment because they're not truly his people. Okay? And that's the reference that he gives here in Revelation chapter 2, that even though these people, the some, the they, even though they're part of the church visibly, they're not truly part of the invisible church, which is truly the body of Christ who will inherit the blessing of eternal life in the life to come. And so as he references these problems, he talks about you, true believers, and some or they, those who call themselves believers, but aren't really. Okay? And then look at how he describes these some in verse 14. He says, Because thou hast there them, there's that some or them, that hold the doctrine of Balaam. Now, if you know the Old Testament at all, you may have heard the story of Balaam. And if you remember, Balaam was the one who the donkey talked to. Okay, Um, here the story goes, and he mentions Balak here, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. Many of us know the first part of the story. Many of us don't know the second part of the story. And Christ is referencing the second part of the story that we forget about. The first part of the story is that Balak was the king of Moab. He saw Israel conquering all these other nations. He got afraid, and so he goes to Balaam, who's supposed to be a prophet of God, And he says, hey, I will pay you to go and curse Israel so they won't be able to conquer my my nation. And Balaam says, okay, let's do it. And the story goes, as he's on his way, remember the angel of God comes with the sword. Balaam didn't see it, but the donkey did. And three times the donkey kind of holds back and Balaam is cursing him and beating him. And eventually the donkey talks to him to try to reprimand him. But he goes ahead anyway. And he goes up on the mountain overlooking the camp of Israel And he starts to prophesy a curse, and what comes out is a blessing. And Balak, the king of Moab, gets upset, and he says, what are you doing? You're supposed to curse him, not bless him. He says, all right, we'll try again. And so he goes up again, and again, a blessing comes out. And he goes a third time, and again, a blessing comes out, and he turns to Balak, and he says, God won't let me curse him. I can't curse him. And so we know that part of the story, but what we don't know, or what we may forget, is that later, Balaam goes to Balak and he says, well, we can't curse him, but we can corrupt him. If you want to get Israel and kind of bring them down, corruption is the way to do it. And all you have to do is infiltrate them with your ungodly and heathen women who are going to appeal to their sensual side, get them to start uh, committing adultery and start intermarrying, which was against the command of God, and God will take them down. You don't have to do a thing. And that's exactly what happened. God cursed Israel because they went a-whoring, the Bible says, with the women of Moab. And they started intermarrying with them. And a plague came upon Israel and 24,000 men died because of it. That's this doctrine of Balaam that he talks about here. There's a couple parts to that. When we look at Balaam's life and how he lived, number one, Ministry for money. It's all about profiting. Church is a business. And Christ is saying there's people in your church who are trying to profit from ministry. Number two, corruption. You want to bring somebody down and control them? Corrupt them with the world. And that is the doctrine of Balaam that, uh, that Christ is talking about here. 
And he talks about Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. And then he describes it to eat things, sacrifice to to idols, and to commit fornication. So not only were they intermarrying with these heathen women and committing adultery with them, but now they were going after their gods. Now, if you read some of Solomon's writings, Solomon was brought down by worldly women. That was his downfall. That was his one true weakness, if you want to describe it that way. And he literally ended up building altars and temples to false gods in Israel because of the women he married. That is what Christ is talking about, that mindset. And now we have people coming into the church basically saying, you know what, this whole thing about holiness, about dedication to God, you know, you're so strict and so structured, you've got to loosen up a little, live a little. Look at how the world is having fun. Look at the culture around us. You're missing out. God doesn't want us to be unhappy and bored. Embrace what you see around you a little bit. You can still worship God and live like the world. And that's what Balaam taught Balak to do the children of Israel, and that became a stumbling block for them. And so they brought literally the practices and the people of paganism into the camp of Israel, and it corrupted the people of God by violating his command to be separate, to be different from the world. And and as I mentioned, God judged them for it. So Christ is saying here that some in the church of Pergamum have brought in this heathen philosophy and practice. Maybe they were trying to make ministry profitable for themselves, you know, urging people to charge money for your ministry. Now, I know we don't have any of that today, especially on TV. If you turn on TV, there's nobody asking for money for healing or for holy oil, right? And I'm being sarcastic because that's all you see on TV for the most part is these healers or these great people who want to tell you that being saved and being a follower of God is all about the benefits. It's about the blessings that God wants to give you. He wants to make you rich. He wants to make you healthy. He wants to make you popular. And that's not what Christ teaches us. He says, if we are going to be a follower of God, you're going to be persecuted. That's why he calls these churches faithful in the face of persecution. Generally, they're not looking for fame and popularity and profit. They were following God. Last week, as we looked at Smyrna, we saw that they were absolutely destitute. They had nothing because of their testimony for Christ. And so these people who teach that salvation and Christianity is all about profiting and getting the blessings. And even sometimes we get in this mode of, well, God has saved me and I'm so glad because now I can get all the good things from him. That's the wrong mindset. God did not save us to make our lives better. God saved us to glorify himself in our changed life as Christ changes us to look like him. And what was Christ's life like? He suffered. He had nothing. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was persecuted by the very religious people that were supposed to be the model for the community. And that's what he says the church is going to go through if you follow him. So here's this doctrine of Balaam and the money aspect of it, or it could have been just the actual sins that Israel committed by bringing in the world's culture and practices into the house of God, literally practicing fornication and idolatry within the church. Now, you look outside, and if we were in the middle of Pergamum, you could go next door to the temple of whatever God you choose, and right there, 
you know, you'd see all kinds of immorality being committed, and that was their worship. And then you come into the church, you go, man, we are really different. Wow. I mean, it's drastically different in here. And these people, the they, the some, were coming into the church going, yeah, why are we so different? We, don't, we shouldn't do that. We're going to drive people away. We need to become more like them so that church becomes more welcoming to the heathen so we can get more people in here. If we get more people in here, the offerings will be bigger and we'll have bigger ministry. And, and you've heard the story before, right? But it started with compromising their holiness to become more like the world. They had compromised God's definition of holiness for them. There's a separation aspect that Christ says, you are to be different from the world. Why? Because we're called to be holy. The world is anything but holy. And so there will be a difference. And he goes on and he says, So thou hast also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, again, we don't know a lot about this doctrine of the Nicolaitans. It's mentioned twice, once in the church at Ephesus and once here. That's all the Bible has to say about it. He never describes it or explains it for us. We can look back in in literature of the time. There's not a lot written about it, actually. In fact, you find almost nothing. What we do know is that it was some kind of false teaching that arose out of Greek Gnosticism, focused around knowledge, which was at the root of what we would now call pragmatism or utilitarianism. And if you don't understand those, let me just basically give you the premise of those philosophies. It sounds like this. If it works, do it. The ends justifies the means. If it feels good, it must be good. Follow your heart. That is the philosophy of the Nicolaitans. Now, I can't describe it anymore for you because that's all we know. But there were two early church fathers, Irenaeus and Clement of Alexandria, and they wrote this about the Nicolaitans. They live lives of unrestrained indulgence, abandoning themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. And you can see that that kind of a lifestyle would come out of that kind of philosophy. It wasn't about following Christ. It was about pleasing me which is humanism, which is satanic at its core. That is the lie that Satan wants the church to believe that we are here to enjoy ourselves. And if he can get that as the core of what we do and how we live and even how we worship, then he's got us. Christ said, I hate it. I hate that philosophy. Now, it's very similar to the doctrine of Balaam, right? Self-pleasure, self-profit, do what I want to do. It's my way, my opinion, my preferences. And so what you have is the doctrine of Balaam, or what Balaam taught in the Old Testament, or lived like. The Nicolaitans were kind of the New Testament version of this. But it all comes down to, it's all about me. And that's at the core of every sin, that's pride. I mean, that's where Satan started. That's what caused him to be thrown out of heaven. Now, let me take just a minute here to focus on a modern-day version of this problem. There are many professing believers in churches. Outwardly, it looks good, very active in church, very concerned about ministry, proclaiming the word of God 
in the streets even. Faithful testimony. But when it comes to their personal lives and their own choices, it becomes much about me, not about holiness. And it shows up in things that we call the gray areas, the music we listen to, how we dress, the, the issue of drinking. You know, there's all of these things we call gray areas, okay? And we call them gray areas because as we look in Scripture, well, there's no hard and fast black and white commands that God said, do it this way, or don't do this, or do this. There's nothing there. So God must have left it, left it up to us to make our own decisions and just follow our preferences in those, right? And the problem is, when we don't have a specific command, in fact, there's commands that are missing for many things we do as believers, but they're based on principles that God has given us in his word. But in these kinds of things, many people like to just ignore the principles because it's much more fun to choose what I want, right? I get some pleasure out of it then. God's given me a free will. I can choose whatever I want here. Now, as they make those choices, the things they choose to do may look more like the world. They may sound more like the world. They may taste and smell more like the world. But, you know, I'm still on the path to holiness because these are areas that don't matter. And there's no specific commands in the Bible. And so God has left us to make our choice. And yet the behavior and the attitude behind that is my pleasure is more important than God's command for holiness. I mean, holiness is what we're called to. Now, if, and I've had discussions with people on these things, and more often than not, what they'll do is they'll go to 1 Corinthians and say, here, we've got, we got to talk about this whole issue that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 10, and then again in Romans chapter 7 when Paul talks about eating meat offered to idols. Okay? And they'll use all of Paul's arguments and come down to this conclusion. All right, well, we know that the meat offered to idols doesn't change. There's still nutrition in it. There's nothing wrong with it. And therefore, we can eat, but we don't want to offend other people. So when they're not around, we're not going to do it. So in my personal life, I can choose to do whatever I want because people don't see me, and it won't affect or hurt anybody. If I'm with somebody who I might offend, I'm going to choose not to do it. What they miss, though, is the context of all of those passages. And the context comes down to this, love trumps liberty. If we love people, we will not do anything in our lives to cause offense or put a stumbling block, and that's the word Paul uses, in their lives. That's exactly the word that Jesus Christ used. The doctrine of Balaam puts a stumbling block in front of the people of God. And so the problem with that argument is that we proof text with passages to prove what we want to prove, but we miss the entire message of Scripture. And the entire message of Scripture is, if you're going to be a follower of Christ, everything about you has to be devoted to him. And you've heard me say this before. God has not given us a preference as far as our life is concerned. God's definition for our life is holiness, defined by him. God is holy. Therefore, we must be holy. And so we are called to holiness above all else, and it doesn't matter if we then, in making these choices, have to give up 
some things that we are allowed or can do based on Christian liberty because we love God more than anything else, and if we love God more than anything else, we will love each other and not do anything that could possibly cause someone else to stumble in their Christian walk. That's the substance of Paul's message. That's the substance of Christian liberty. And yet, so many Christians that I've met, anyway, in my, in my, his, uh, my life, will claim Christian liberty to allow them to do whatever they want. Even though it might look worldly, it may be worldly, it may be a bad testimony. But, you know, it's my choice because there's no commands about it. What about God's holiness? You know, he's called us to be holy. Here's the other problem with this meat offered to idols. Anybody who believes that the meat offered to idols issue is just a choice and a thing about not offending other people, well, they've missed what Christ is saying here because he's condemning practices where meat offered to idols is eaten. He condemns it, which fits the rest of Scripture. Because that's exactly what Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, if meat will offend my brother, I will not eat meat, period. He says the same thing in Romans chapter 14. And in 1 Corinthians 10, the whole issue of eating meat offered to idols, what does it end with? Whether therefore ye eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. It's not about my pleasure, it's about glorifying God, about showing his character, his nature, through the holiness that God is building in me through the work of the Holy Spirit as I submit to him instead of to my own choices or my own pleasure. That's the doctrine of Balaam. That's the Nicolaitans. I can do what I want because I have the freedom to do it. And I've had many conversations with people where we talk about this, and basically the bottom foundation of their argument is, Because I can. And if you have to defend anything you choose to do in life with that argument, and that's the substance of it, you're on shaky ground. It's not because I can. It's because it glorifies God. Because it draws me closer to him. God's holiness is what separates him from the world, makes him different. And God's holiness in us is what should cause us to have to separate from the world in the practices, in our lifestyle, and the choices we make. If we look and live exactly like the world, what kind of a testimony do we have for Christ? Zero. Because people will look at us and say, well, they're just like me. Why do I need to change? I don't need that God. And that's what Christ is condemning here. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter gives this message. He says in verse 14 through 16, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts of your ignorance. What was the ignorance? I can do what I want. God's let me have free reign. He says, don't live that way. But as he that hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. That means all of your life. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. So as the church, Christ is giving this message to us as well as to this church in Pergamos. And he's saying we are supposed to evaluate everything according to the principles of God's holiness. Everything I do has to fit into that paradigm. Does it fit God's definition of holiness? 
and if it doesn't meet with God's definition of holiness and draw me and others, not just me, but others, there's that love factor, right? Closer to God through its very nature and substance, then that means it's something that's not necessary for our lives, number one, and that could be a danger to others, number two. Because God is not going to make us give up something that we need. But when it comes down to the Christian life, what do we really need? God. Because he is the provider of everything. We have him, we have everything we need. And that's the, exactly the principle that Christ talks about and that Paul talks about when he says, mortify the flesh. And Christ says, take up your cross daily and, and follow me. Crucify yourself, your pleasures, your own desires to do what brings holiness and what gives a picture of God's holiness. Not living according to our lust, but living according to God's spirit. So the message here for us from what Christ is saying is we cannot make Christianity or church whatever we want it to be. We must follow what God says it's to be. And it has to be built, number one, on the principle of God's holiness. We cannot compromise God's standard of holiness either in how we worship or in how we live. That's what he's called us to. And that's exactly what he's condemning this church for. They have compromised the holiness of God that he wants to build in their lives. We cannot make our lives or the church fit our own preferences and desires. Both have to conform to God's standard of holiness. And that means being different from the world, according to what God says is right and holy. So the problem here is the church at Pergamum was looking more and more like the world around it was fitting into the culture. And at the end of verse 15, look at Christ's words. Which thing I hate. Now, if Christ came and stood in your living room and said, I need to talk to you about something, and he pointed out something in your life and he said, I really hate that. Hopefully, what would your response be? Okay, Lord, I give it up. But most people, even Christians, would go, wait, 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 you got to understand, Lord. you got to understand. You, know, you didn't give me a command about this. There's nothing in there that says I can't do this or have to do this. But see, it's that attitude that Christ says he hates, not the actions. Because Christ is looking at their heart. It's that attitude Holiness doesn't really matter. And Christ says, this is what I hate. And he gives them the warning. Look at verse 16. Repent, or else I will come back unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Here's that them again. What he's saying to the church as a whole is repent, not just to those who are practicing this, but to those who are tolerating this in their church. Basically, they had a whole bunch of people in their church who came to church and worshipped with everybody else. And God is holy and God is great. Yay. And then they went out and lived like everybody else in the world in immorality and self-pleasure and self-fulfillment. And then they came back on Sunday. Oh, we love the Lord. Yeah, we worship together. And God says, you cannot tolerate that. 
You must repent. And he says, if you don't repent, I will come quickly and will fight against them. Those people that are bringing this attitude and this philosophy into the church and corrupting other people. And what does he fight with them with? The sword of his mouth, the word of his mouth. Judgment. This is the them that I talked about before. And what defines them? Worldliness. And self-justification of being like the world. It's okay, I can do it both ways. I can walk the fence. You make too much of the separation thing. God doesn't. God doesn't make too much of separation. Actually, he demands it. And Christ says, repent, or I'm going to come and judge you. Now, these people are the people who are so enamored with the world that they can't be happy with God. But they're so enamored with God, they can't be happy in the world either. That's a miserable Christian. But if they're really happy with the world, then they can't be happy with God. And you can't please God. Christ says, repent. Or I'm going to come and judge you with the word of my mouth. Now, there are people in Christ's church who are hurting and corrupting Christ's work and what God wants to accomplish. And if we are not aware and pay attention and do what we can to exhort and sometimes admonish and put out of fellowship those people, and that's what church discipline is about, is recognize open sin that's bringing reproach upon the name of Christ and corrupting the church in its practice and in its philosophy and in its living. If we can't do that, then Christ eventually will himself. Jude chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, Jude talks about false teachers, and that's what Christ is referencing here. If somebody comes into the church and says, nah, you don't need to worry about separation. Holiness is overblown. Okay, they're a false teacher. And Jude says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Same faith. For there are certain men crept in unawares. That means they're already in the church and we don't even realize it any yet. Okay? They have crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. It means God knows who they are. They're not true believers. And they are reserved for judgment. He says, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. That word lasciviousness means self-pleasure, self-gratification. And denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because they do not see Christ as the true Lord of their life. He's a co-pilot, but he's not in control. And he goes on, Jude says, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though once ye knew this, how that the Lord, and here's this, initial, this analogy he gives, how the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed them that believed not. And you go, wait a minute, Israel was God's chosen people. I've had this conversation with several people. And, and I yes, ask the question, are, are all of the Israelites going to be in heaven because God 
They were, they were God's chosen people, right? I mean, by his sovereignty, they didn't do anything to earn or deserve that. God chose them. And yet here, Jude says, there were a lot of, a lot of Israelites who came out of Egypt, and afterward, they were destroyed because they believed not. Now, if God is going to do that to his chosen people, what is he going to do in the church to those who do not believe? And it's not about, yeah, I believe this. I, I, yep, it's all true. What about this? What about how we live every day? Is this still true? Would people see this in our lives? And so God did not spare his own chosen people of Israel who rebelled against him and coveted the things of Egypt instead of what God had planned for them. And God will not spare people in the church just because they go to church and just because they do good things if they continue to live like the world with the philosophy of the world and bring corruption of the world into the church. That's Christ's message. The sword of his judgment will be executed against his enemies. And those people who live that way are his enemies. And he will speak final condemnation, and all those false believers will be damned to eternal punishment. But it's not all bad news because he's given an opportunity to repent. He says, repent. I'm not coming right now. Repent. You have an option here. You can keep going the way you're going and get judgment, or you can repent. And then those who repent, look at the promise. Verse 17, to those who overcome, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him that, hath, that, that overcometh, will I give to eat of the hidden manna, will I give him a white stone, and in that stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saying, he that receiveth it. Who are those that overcometh? First John chapter 4 describes that for us. Verses 4 through 6, Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, that's the world, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We have overcome the temptation to become like the world. We have overcome the overwhelming influence of the world in our lives and in our worship. He goes on in verse 5 in 1 John 4, They are of the world, therefore they speak of the world. And the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. Sounds like he that hath an ear, let him hear. He that is not of God heareth not us. And hereby we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Christians who want to live like the world are people who won't hear. Now, that's not my definition, and I'm not saying this because that's what I think. That's what God says. And those who won't hear are not overcomers, and those who are not overcomers will not receive the crown of righteousness, will not receive the crown of life, will not be brought into the kingdom of God. That's Christ's words. And he says, to those who overcometh, I will give the hidden manna. Remember, manna was that miraculous supernatural bread that God rained down from heaven every morning to Israel for 40 years as they wandered in the wilderness. What else did they need besides manna? Nothing. It had all the nutrition, all the substance, everything they needed to survive and continue to be healthy, 
God provided in that manna. That's all they needed. Nothing else. Now they complain, oh, that's not enough. We need meat. We need this. We need that. Right? But that's all they needed because that's what God gave them. Jesus calls himself the bread of life. How much more, as a believer, do we need than Jesus Christ? Nothing. And yet, how much more do we try to gain for ourselves and seek out in the world because we're not satisfied? He's not enough. And he says, to him that overcometh, I will give the hidden manna, that bread of life, that eternal life in Jesus Christ. And then he says, I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Interesting analogy. Christ uses uh, examples of things these people were familiar with. Through Asia Minor, there were all kinds of athletic games. In fact, almost every big city had a big amphitheater that you would go sit in to watch these events. It's where the Christians were thrown to the lions and were thrown to the gladiators. But in these athletic events or in the gladiator fights, the, the winner of those events was given a white stone. That white stone was significant. Okay? And on that stone, their name was written. We give out medals today, or ribbons, okay? They received the white stone. And so that was one of the greatest rewards you could get. But that white stone was their ticket into all of the elite gatherings, was their ticket into the palaces, was their ticket into the best of society because they had overcome and had received this white stone. And it had their name on it, so nobody else could use it. And Jesus is saying to those who overcome, to those who persevere, to those who truly live like I am Lord and resist the temptation to become like the world, to corrupt God's holiness with all the stuff that we think we need, they receive the white stone. And it says there's a name written on that stone. In verse 16, I'm sorry, verse 17, I will give him a white stone and then stone a new name written. We sing a hymn. There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. Yes, it's mine. There's the verse that comes from. And God says, I'm going to give you a new name. Not some earthly name that some person thought would be good for you, but a perfect name that God recognizes you by. Remember, he changed Jacob's name to Israel. That was a sign of his promise. And the new name that we receive in heaven is going to be a symbol of the fulfillment of his promise. But those people who overcome will receive this white stone with a new name. It literally is given to us as we enter into the kingdom of God. Let me finish with this. Are you an overcomer? Are you faithful to God amidst an ungodly culture? Christ said Pergamum had the right works. The right doctrine. But they allowed the world to infiltrate their worship and their lives. And it corrupted them. You cannot love God and the world at the same time. It can't happen. If the love of the world is in you, the love of the Father is not in you. First John tells us that. So we must 
commit ourselves to God's version of holiness in our lives and in this church, or we risk the judgment of Christ because we will not hear. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What is Christ saying to you today about your life? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray now that you would continue to work in our lives, that you would make your truth fulfill its purpose. There are many times that we pray that you would come quickly, but there's many in your church who are those for which judgment is coming because they will not hear you and listen to you. And yet again, even today, you've given us an opportunity to repent, to return to what you've called us to because you're patient and merciful. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us not to live our lives for ourselves, choosing those things that please us and for our own pleasure, but help us to live so that you get the glory, so that your holiness continues to be manifested in our lives. And, Lord, in that process, I pray that you would break us from what we want to be and mold us into the model of your holiness so that you can truly be seen in our lives. Lord, help us to truly submit ourselves to you and your will in everything. Help us to be faithful, holding fast to your name, even unto death, so that you might be honored and glorified, and we might be the overcomers who receive that reward at the end of life. And Lord, we pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. We're going to close with hymn number 202. In times like these, we need a Savior. We're just going to sing the first and last verses, 202. I'm going to ask as you uh, get that.